Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. My next guest is John Morris, and I can tell you this is a man who plays to win. Coming from a long family line of entrepreneurs, there was no doubt in his mind that he wanted to start his own business. In his words, he didn't care what it was. He just wanted to take something small and turn it into something big. And boy, did he do that. John scaled his digital marketing agency, Rise Interactive, from a $10,000 investment in 2004 to a 24 million plus company by the time he exited in 2018. Now, the way he got there makes for a fascinating conversation, and I'm really excited to share his story with you. This is John Morris. Hey, John, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thank you, Sam, for having me here. Really excited about this. No, my absolute pleasure. I'm um, really looking forward to, to hearing your story and sharing it with our audience and, and unpacking some of, the, some of the sort of detail about your journey. So, um, but uh, John, maybe, uh, maybe I could ask you to kick off and, and maybe just give us a bit of a bit of your background and, and what led you to starting the business Rise Interactive? Absolutely. So I'll go back all the way to when I graduated college in 1996, 22 years old, couldn't get a job, knew nothing really about computers, but decided to create a computer company. And um, I started learning all about websites. Honestly, I only knew about websites or the internet for about six months at that time period. But I was developing the ugliest websites you've ever seen. And as I was developing (laughs) these ugly websites, people kept on asking me, well, how is anyone going to find my website? And the answer was, I had no idea. Nobody knew. Uh, but that really started my journey of getting into digital marketing. And I created my first agency uh, in 1996. I ran it for about five years, grew to about 10 people, never really made it anywhere, shut the agency down, went to another company, ran their digital marketing department for their agency. And then I decided I was actually going to get out of the agency world completely. And so I went to University of Chicago for business school uh, to go into finance. Uh, I got a, a internship for a hedge fund and I was bored out of my mind. And I just knew <laughs> that it was not the right job for me. Uh, and University of Chicago has an annual business plan competition called the New Venture Challenge. And a friend of mine was asking people for ideas about what to do to enter that competition. I had no interest in starting a business. All I knew is that I thought the competition would be fun and I wanted to win the competition. So the original idea was to teach digital marketing to small businesses. We entered the competition. We 
uh, ended up taking second place in the competition, won $10,000 and Rise Interactive was born. So it was not a very purposeful journey to like get into it. It was more, I entered a competition, I wanted to win it. But then when we took second place, by the way, still very, very bitter. It was not first place. <laughs> um, I, I started to feel like, well, you know, you had all these really successful entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and private equity people thinking I had something there. So I was like, well, why don't I give it a shot and try to take the business off the ground? And so I, um, I decided to pursue it. And that was kind of what got my journey started. Yeah, that's interesting, and 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 somewhat a bit of validation, I guess you're saying, is that that seeing all these other people out there, these professionals who clearly believe in you already, yeah, um, you know, so why not why not give it a go? So now my family did not feel the same way. By the way, there was actually an intervention to talk me out of doing this, but I didn't listen to them, and I chose to pursue it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, sounds like a, a common sort of thing with entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. so let me take you back again to 96 because I remember 96. I was at university. I, I still remember back then we, we were still going to the library and pulling books off shelves to do our assignments. Yeah. It was horrible. <laughs> um, I, my kids have no idea how, how good they've got it in a lot of ways. But I, I do remember sitting in the computer room of the uh, the university at the time because, of course, they only had one room with, you know, half a dozen computers or something. And I remember my friend at the time saying, you know, you've got to come and check out this thing. There's this internet thing. And yeah. and it was and at the time it was so basic. It was just so basic. I sat there going, okay, great, you can try to do these couple of little things, but so what? Like it just, you know, like it was so, the, the functionality was crap. Really, <laughs> um, but but obviously you saw something here, right? Like I, I'm just I'm fascinated because you, you, you said you didn't come from a computer background, but clearly you saw something in in this being the future. So I'm just I'm just curious, maybe what drove that for you? You know what? What I would say is when I say computer company, I use that word as a loose term. Is I really just threw a lot of mud at the wall. I was helping people with their network administration, building their website. And, and I wouldn't say I was like I had any brilliance behind it other than more people seemed interested in this Internet thing, you know. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. Going back to the 1990s, I remember people used to be like, do you want to build a website on the World Wide Web on computers or on the Internet on computers? You know, so uh, and so, you know, that's really just how I got into it. And if you think about it today, there isn't a business that really exists that doesn't have a website. So yeah, well, so and if they don't have a website, that. they don't exist, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, out of your interest, John, do, do your um your parents were they were they entrepreneurial? Did they have their own businesses? Like coming straight out of college and starting a company is is kind of not I would say the norm. Yeah. So. My mom owned her own business. My dad owned her own, his own business. My grandma owned her own business. My grandpa owned his own business. I, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Uh, and I've known from a little kid that I always wanted to start my own company. Uh, so, um, you know, and I didn't really care what it was. I just wanted to, like, to me, I was excited about the idea of taking something small and turning it into something big. Yeah, nice, nice. It's um that's a really interesting pathway because it's uh you know you obviously had some great um role models to 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 yeah. learn from so um 
So, okay, so fast forward. So you've, you've come second in the competition. You know, it, I can tell it's maybe slightly competitive. Um, <laughs> so, so we've got the 10 grand and that's what you've used to, to launch Rise Interactive. So, so high, high level, what problems did Rise Interactive solve and, and who did they serve? Okay, so we were originally putting on two-day seminars and the concept was to teach small businesses how to do digital marketing uh, but we were not going to be in the agency business. We were not going to manage their digital marketing. We just wanted to teach it. And I was putting on these two-day seminars, and people kept on asking, couldn't you just manage this for me? And <laughs> uh, I started to recognize that there was more demand for me doing it versus teaching it. Um, and so I started uh, my digital agency. My very first client was $50 a month. Uh, I did... Uh, a whopping $12,000 in sales my first year. Uh, and so, you know, it it was as bootstrapped as you could possibly imagine. Yeah, wow. Wow. It's, um, it would have been an exciting journey still, though. I mean, obviously, you had a bit of passion in it. When did you, um, and, and, and presumably you, were, you started the business on your own at that stage, so 100% yours? So- so I had a partner, uh, partner, still one of my closest friends, uh, is funny because, you know, I went to business school to get into the hedge fund space and he owns his own hedge fund. And I, uh, and I own my own digital marketing or I owned my own digital marketing agency. He decided he didn't want to pursue the business. So we came out with an agreement for me to buy him out. Uh, that was very amicable and fair given that we had basically no revenue and, I kept on going with the business and he moved on uh, more into investment banking at that time. Yeah, okay. Okay, interesting. Interesting. So, okay, so this was around sort of 2004. You founded yep. the company. It started growing. T- talk me through, what does the trajectory look like for this business? Uh, so first thing is, when you go to business school, a lot of things they teach you is about you go raise money, you build this up for five to seven years, you sell it for a large amount of money. Uh, and, and that was not my philosophy at all. Uh, my philosophy was I wanted to build a great company and at a 20 year time horizon. Uh, I, I used to run a lot of marathons. And if you ever do marathon training, I always tell people, if you can run six miles, you can run a marathon because the first long run is six miles. And then seven miles is the next long run, and then down to five, and then up to nine, and then up to 10, then down to seven. It's kind of like two up, one down. It like ladders up. And I had the same perspective for business, but rather than weeks in, of training, it was years. And rather than miles, it was dollars. And so, you know, what I wanted to do was every year is make an incremental investment so that the next year, the company would be a little bit bigger. Uh, so I went from 12,000 to 80,000 to 350,000 to 750,000 to 1.1 million to what I call my asterisk year, which was 1.1 million again. Uh, and then 2 million, 4 million, 8 million, 12 million, 13, 19, 24. You know, and it just kept on growing, getting bigger and bigger. Uh, wow. Wow. That's fantastic. So that was kind of the philosophy behind it. Do you um, look? My experience, I guess, I'm interested in yours. It's it, uh, running a one sort of to two million dollar company is very different to running a twenty million dollar company. Um, were there any kind of major, I guess, barriers or points in that growth that you had to kind of push through 
you know, to, to, to get to that next level? Absolutely. If you think about, uh, first of all, there are different phases of being, or different types of CEOs. So there are what I'll say startup CEOs, growth CEOs, mature CEOs, mega CEOs. So if you think about between zero and 50, you're kind of in this startup CEO, you know everybody, your hands are involved in everything. And you know, you have a not only do you have a pulse on everything, you are the pulse of everything. And right when you get to around 20 people, uh, the infrastructure that you build uh, has to be so that your leaders can manage as opposed to you managing. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, there was someone on the team who was giving us a really hard time. Uh, I just promoted someone new to account manager. This person was reporting into that account manager. Uh, and the account manager came to talk to me about that person. They're like, you know, I have a problem. I want to talk to you about it. And I said, well, I got good news for you. And he's like, well, what's that? And I said, well, I let go of that person today, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. And he had a great comment to me, which was, uh, if you ever want the team to respect me, you have to let me make my own decisions. And I knew right then and there, I had to be a different CEO from that moment on going forward. Because up to that point, I was zero to 17, I made all the decisions. I decided who we hired. I decided who we fired. I decided who we promoted. And then I started building a leadership team and empowering them to make those decisions. Uh, and so that would be like one major learning point along that journey. Uh, another one is when you get to about 100 employees, you run into the same issue. Now the infrastructure you've built has been for the people who are leaders underneath you but not for their leaders. And so you have to start thinking about the tools, processes, and systems when you get to 100 employees are very different than when you have 50, which is very different than when you have 20. And so uh, uh, you have to evolve as a CEO. You have to evolve in terms of the way you do your business. Uh, when you get to about 250 people, uh, I really be believe it becomes much more of an ecosystem. You know, to give you an example, uh, Someone on the sales team decided to switch the CRM system at one point, but the CRM system was completely integrated with all these other departments. Um, and so we learned, you know, our tools and our processes are now much more connected. We're used to be able to make decisions in silos. You no longer are able to do that when you get to that scale. So those are kind of the cool learnings that you learn as you scale and grow the different businesses. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and how did you personally find that shift, um, you know, that shift of the different type of CEO? Was it comfortable? Did you, you know, what, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, I actually enjoyed every single stage of being a different CEO. When I left, I was much more of a strategic CEO than I was an operating CEO. I don't know how much I love that versus being in the weeds and doing everything. I think I did a good job at it. Uh, but you now had someone in charge of absolutely everything. So your job is to steer the ship. It's supposed to guide. It's supposed to be there for mentorship and to help people. But you really got to let people do their jobs. Uh, and, you know, I like getting in the thick of it. And so the, that's something that I found interesting as I got to that scale. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and, and I guess I'm curious, did you 
Did you expect the business to be as successful as it was when you when you kicked it off? You know, I don't know if I expected it or not, but uh, I planned for it. Uh, you know, when I hired my first, you know, senior employee, which is a person named Scott Conine, who grew to be the chief operating officer, uh, he was the first employee. He was interviewed in my 1300 square foot condo and which was our office until we had about eight people and you know i told him that the goal was to be the world's largest independent digital agency and um and so you know that's with me having one other employee at that time working out of my house that was what i told people the vision was for the company so the intent was to build a large company from the very beginning. Yeah, cool. Uh, and you got there, which is, uh, which is awesome. Um, did you uh, – I'm always curious, obviously, as you know, our, our uh, regular day business is Exit Advisory Group, so we talk a lot about exiting. And, and I'm curious, did you – you know, you mentioned you had a 20-year longer-term time horizon, but had you thought about – that exit still was it still going to be a sale? Was it you know how, how much how much thought had gone into it at the early stages? A lot of thought went into the early stages. I had a great exit strategy. I was going to die one day. That, <laughs> <Yeah>. Guaranteed, guaranteed, <laughs> uh, and that was my exit strategy. You know, I yeah. wanted to build an amazing business. Uh, I often tell people that if you focus on the exit, uh, that you're you're not going to probably get to where you want to be. Focus on the journey. Focus on building something special. Focus on building something great. And if you take care of your customers, you do a good job for them, you build a sales and marketing infrastructure to bring in new business, you have really good financial management systems in place, you can build something special. And then, you know, the amount of people calling you on a regular basis to buy your company will naturally happen, but just don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Focus on building something special, and you'll have op- options, right? Yep. Yeah. At, um. So, what? Um. To talk me through a little bit, like when did you start to think that it was time to entertain those selling discussions? So I would. I'll, I'll take a step before that. Uh, I had a vision for uh, investing. First of all, I want to just tell you a little bit about how the agency structure works. I'll get to your question in a slightly roundabout way. Uh, an agency typically is valued based on a multiple of profit. So, so, so EBITDA or something yeah, like EBITDA. that? And it, it generally ranges from five times EBITDA up to 15 times EBITDA. And every once in a while, you'll hear of a crazy story where someone got a much higher multiple, but 98% of all transactions fall within that range. And uh, the other thing that I look at was a typical agency, EBITDA should be 20% of revenue is kind of considered an industry standard that everyone looks at as a benchmark. Okay, okay. so uh, I decided to be our own private equity company. And rather than focusing on 20%, I was going to live between zero and 5% and 
and invest back in the business to fuel the growth of the company. Okay. And if you think about private equity generally wants an average return of a 20% return on their investment. If I had things that I could invest in that would outperform the NASDAQ, outperform you know, the Dow or the S&P and provide a 20% return or greater, then I wanted to do so. So that was just, first of all, my mindset. I got to the point where I wanted to invest in sales, marketing, and technology, and I recognized I needed more capital than what I was able to invest in. So in 2016, I took a minority investment from a company called Quad Graphics. They've rebranded as Quad, uh, and you might not be familiar with them, but they are the largest printer in the United States. So right. any, okay. any magazine that you read, they print, uh, I don't know the exact revenue, but I, think, I believe it's around $4 billion in revenue. You know, it's a very large 22,000 employee company, uh, and they are looking to diversify uh, their revenue streams and get more into digital. So the acquisition or the investment made sense. And then what made them really exciting was... They have a list of clients that are the largest companies in the world. They have a huge sales force. They're able to make all sorts of introductions. So we saw this strategic investment of we can invest in the technology and get our door open through this partnership uh, with Quad. So Fantastic. So that's how we um, got to that stage. Yeah, and that's fascinating. And I'm just and sorry to cut across you. It's it's just interesting how often I think a growth strategy and an exit strategy are just flip sides of the same coin. Yeah, and uh, and it's really what had happened was I would say first of all the people at Quad are just flat out amazing people. Um, you know, even though I'm not involved with Quad, I'm not involved with Rise anymore. I cannot think of higher quality individuals, high integrity, uh, just people who truly care about you. When things are tough, they'll be for their, you. So I, I built a really good relationship and you know, I felt really good about the people that I was working with on the other side. So yeah, um, and, and you don't, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine uh, was in charge of a lot of the M&A for the holding companies. And he's a, a wonderful person. And he's like, you know, before the sale, you get me. And then after the sale, some other people come around that aren't as warm and fuzzy, you know, and are a little bit more challenging to deal with. Uh, Quad wasn't like that. You know, the people who I saw up front were the same people I saw behind the scenes. So, you know, it's 2016. Uh, Rise is still growing. Um we decided that we wanted more investment into the company uh, to continue to fuel the growth of the business. And so in 2018, I sold majority ownership to Quad. Uh, I did not hire an M&A advisory company or shop it. I, I knew the partners that I liked. I knew the partners I wanted to be with. Uh, I know that they will take care of, you know, this baby that I grew, you know, rise. And so it was a natural transition, um, you know, in terms of how I got to majority ownership with them. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's um, that's really interesting. When when you did the first, um, you sold the first sort of minority stake. Yeah. What did that process sort of look like? Did 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 you entertain discussions with other parties at that point, or I did. Um, I actually came really close to signing with another syndicate, uh, which would have been a more traditional route, a private equity route. Um, And at the end of the day, I actually really liked the people. I think that it would have been a good deal. I don't know if I liked the terms. There was uh, some preferred equity in there that really, I think, concerned me as one of the big things. And, um, And so I ended up, walking away from that deal. And then uh, about six months later, I got revisited by the, you know, the people at Quad and ended up doing that deal with them. Yeah, that's interesting. And and John, and I guess just for our listeners too, so, you know, preferred equity, um, you know, we've certainly done a few deals and seen a few more deals out there where, you know, just for those who don't understand that term, often, you know, private equity investing will take, preference shares, meaning that they often get paid first. So if everything went went south, they'd get their money before anybody else gets their, the other shareholders get any money out of it. So is, is, was that, is that kind of similar to, to, the, to what you were looking at, John, yeah. or was it a bit different? Yeah, my, my biggest fear at that time was that if I went and spent three to five years, because once you take this money on, there's, there's a clock in terms of generally when you have to sell, because these people have an expectation and it's fair that they have this expectation that they're going to get their money out. And I was concerned that I was going to continue to grow, put up big numbers, but because they took their money out first, I didn't know if the value, like would have gotten the same value if I just sold the company at that moment in time. And those were just things that were going through my head, um, you know, that made me wonder if this was the right structure or not the right structure. Yeah, so. no, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And and so uh, how long, um, you know, for those who haven't been through a process like this, um, you know, I guess from the moment where you realised, hey, we need some external capital to keep growing this business to, to the point of actually signing a deal and having cash injected in the business, how, how long did that take and, and, you know, what was the journey like? It took about nine months to 12 months. Uh, one, I didn't hire uh, an expert. So I think if I hired an advisory firm, uh, it probably would have taken less time. Uh, but the first thing that I learned was different people who invest in organizations have different investment theses. And so if you say that we only invest in, you know, companies with 10 million in EBITDA or greater, uh, they're not going to invest in companies that have less than 10 million in EBITDA. And, uh, or if they only invest in technology companies or they only invest in healthcare companies. But I didn't really know anyone in the investor community. So I'm just calling a ton of different people that have the word private equity in their name. And a lot of them were great. You know, they're like, you know, look, this isn't for me, but you want to go talk to this person. And so, a lot of my phone calls were just getting to the right person who invests in service-based companies because a lot of people don't invest in service-based companies uh, at the scale and size I was at that time. So 
Uh, and, and the volume of no's that I received was unbelievable. I consider myself a fairly good salesperson, uh, and I needed very thick skin during that time period. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it sounds like it almost became a second job. It, it probably became my primary job at that moment yeah. in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, I'm amazed you actually did all that calling yourself because I, I know firsthand how much how labor-intensive it is. And, uh, yeah. and I, guess, I guess for yourself, I mean, you've obviously built your business to a point where you had leadership and you had teams. And, but I just, I just know so many business owners out there are so busy doing their day job that the thought of taking on a second day job is just <laughs> – yeah. Overwhelming. <laughs> but, but I think that people underestimate the amount of time and energy it takes, you know, to yes. build the data room, to build the list of people that you're going to go talk to and follow up with everybody. Uh, you know, combination of hubris and uh, naivete, I think, led to the decision of me doing it on my own uh, as opposed to hiring someone to take care of it. Yeah, yeah. Did you end up building a sim or an information memorandum or anything like that? Um, what was the first word you used? A, a sim, a confidential information memorandum. So, uh, I don't believe I did. No. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I do, it's you know that that document of you know using to to pitch the business to those buyers is uh, we've just built so many of them, and some some of them have been kind of twenty pages, and some of them have been fifty pages, and they can just be such a uh-huh. It, a labor of love building them. Sometimes they can be a lot of fun building them because you love being able to just really, yeah. you know, pump the tires and demonstrate how great a business is. But geez, sometimes they can just, you know, well, you can see I'm bald, so I've obviously pulled my hair out already. So <laughs> um, <laughs> you can't tell that I'm gray in the sides here. So <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a fun journey. I mean, but look, I think nine to twelve months is actually. Um, Certainly not uncommon. Um, you know, I've, I've, we've seen it move a lot faster than that, but it's also not common that it moves. You know, I've, we've, we've done some deals in a couple of months, but it's, I keep saying to people that is not the norm. It's that's that was luck. It's um, yeah. you know just right right place right time. But it's um, I, I I find one of the things about it taking six nine twelve months though is um, is that this idea of deal fatigue and and how real that. Can be and how much that can set in. Did, yeah. did, did you find anything like that in your situation? I don't think so. I, I think you know. I mean, a couple of things. One, if you just take like the sales cycle, you know, I found every single stage like getting someone signed a term sheet was a lot of work. When they signed a term sheet, you get into the due diligence, and that's a lot of work. Like things like just even if like it goes incredibly smoothly. I'm guessing it's still three to four months just of legal back and forth. And so uh, I don't think we got to deal fatigue at all. I think I got to personal fatigue. But, but, you know, I I think that it was a lot of initially a lot of time spent just calling the wrong people in the beginning. uh, Because I think a lot of where my time got wasted. Yeah, yeah. and and. I, I'm sort of interested in the um, in the mind shift as you start to go through this transition. You know, obviously you divested a minority stake. No doubt that's given you a lot of capital and fuel to keep growing. Yeah. But once you sell a my majority, I'm, I'm curious as to what shifts take place at that point, if any, both mentally as well as I guess in the way things work. Well, there's a couple of things. One, 
you know, other than a year and a half between like 2000 and 2001, I've never worked for somebody. You know, <laughs> I've been my own boss that entire time period. Uh, I was very scared about, could I be a good employee? And although, yes, I am still the owner or sorry, still the CEO of the company, I have a board now. I've never had a board before. Uh, you know, I'm part of a 22,000 person organization. Uh, so there was a lot of just for me, like learning how to get comfortable with that uh, and really wanting to make sure that I over delivered for them. As, as I mentioned before, these are people I cared about and I wanted to do right by them. And, you know, look, they changed my life forever. They put a lot of money into this business. They put a lot of money into me personally. And, you know, I wanted to make sure I still want to make sure that the return they get on on buying Rise Interactive was the best thing they ever did for themselves. Um, yeah. So I think that was one big factor. The second big thing is uh, they are a much more EBITDA-driven business than Rise was historically. Uh, so we were much more focused on top-line growth and less focused on bottom-line growth. And so... Uh, I, I, do, I think it was comfortable for me and I think it was comfortable for my leadership team, but we made a lot of decisions that were, you know, EBITDA driven that trickle throughout the organization. And, you know, I, I think that that took not a long period, but I think, you know, it took some time period for the company to adjust to like, this is what we're focusing on. This is what's important to the company, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you find, I know, I know you had a lot of staff at that point, so you can't sort of speak for everybody individually, but did, did you notice with your staff, were there any challenges for some of the staff doing a bit of a cultural shift going into a bigger organization as well? So the part that I think Quad had an absolute home run with is other than setting our financial goals, you know, with us and I now had to report to a board. They really left the company alone. Uh, you know, they, I think that they were very nervous about not wanting to integrate too quickly, not wanting to scare anybody off. Uh, and so I think there was some natural fear of whenever a company is now part of a larger organization of, what does that mean for me? Uh, you know, are they going to let people go? You know, are they going to get rid of the back office, which oftentimes happens, you know, all those types of things. And they really did it. You know, they, I can't think of really any decision uh, that I wasn't able to make in terms of running the business. I, I was, you know, I think I did a good job of getting in front of them, you know, so uh, what I learned about them is they're okay if you have bad news to share. They just don't want to be surprised with bad news. Yes. So getting in front of them and letting them know that something is happening uh, is, you know, so like if we had an account that was in jeopardy, I would tell them, you know, pretty much as soon as I knew, as opposed to waiting, you know, and be like, hey, we just lost this account. Sorry, I didn't tell you earlier. You know. And then if we saved the count, it was awesome. If we didn't, we were well prepared for it. The board was in know of what was going to happen, et cetera. Yes. 
Yeah. And look, isn't that just a universal principle for life and business? <laughs> yeah. I think I had a similar discussion with my 14-year-old the other day. <laughs> about, yes. No um, surprises, buddy. Talk to me early, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that's cool. So um, can I ask you, and, and look, I don't want to step on any sort of areas that may be confidential here, but um, I, I know with a lot of my clients, like deals can come in so many different structures and, you know, there's, I, I, I guess most commonly I see three different types of sort of components. You know, there's an upfront cash component. Sometimes there's a deferred cash component, just, you know, it's not at risk, but it's just going to be paid over a period of time. And then often there's a bucket yeah. that might be an earnout that's at risk. Um Without going into numbers and stuff like that, did can you talk me through a little bit around what sort of structure you, you had? Yeah, so it was combination of upfront plus earnout. Okay, um, it was a. Um, I can't go into the structure of how the earnout worked, but I was incentivized sure. to stay on longer within the organization. Um, and so, you know, 2018 was when majority sold. I left in 2020. Uh, there was actually still uh, more earnout to be had if I stayed longer. Uh, there okay. were some personal reasons that I chose that it was the right time to leave. Uh, I would say there's, I would say there's probably two two major reasons I read. the The primary one was more of a personal one, um, but then there was also um, when I was looking at the playbook. For 2020, it was very similar to the playbook to 2019. And I felt like I always talk about the first business day of the year I call game day. And I'm always really excited for game day. And uh, and this year, I just wasn't excited. Like, I just felt like it wasn't new. It wasn't challenging. Uh, and so I wouldn't say that that was the overriding reason. I think it was more what I was talking about before, but I just knew it was time to uh, potentially move on and do something different. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think that's an interesting way to phrase it about game day and whether it's new and challenging. It's, you know, I've worked for large organizations. I know lots of people who have, and I think that, I think there is an element of as businesses get to a certain size, they're so big that, you know, it's it's a little bit hard for them to be as exciting and innovative each year on year, right? Like a lot of it is, let's just do kind of what we did last year, but maybe just a little bit more. Yeah. And <laughs> Which when put like that is not very inspiring. <laughs> and that's what, what I've learned about me personally is I really thrive on complexity and learning new things. Uh, you know, uh, if I take my new business I've never done this type of business before. I'm, I'm passionate. I'm excited about it. I mean, I, I wake up every day so happy and I'm making substantially less money than I was, you know, when I left Rise. Uh, but the challenges I find really rewarding and I'm excited about what I, you know, I once again have a 20 year time frame. I'm not looking for, you know, the sale. I'm looking to build something great and special. And and this time it's really about helping people. So which yeah. feels awesome. Yeah, nice. Well that's a, that's probably a great little segue. I mean, can you can you talk us through a little bit about what you are doing these days? Yeah, absolutely. So when I when I think about the success I had at Rise, a lot of it came down to the financial infrastructure I built. Okay. So 
Uh, I talked to you a little bit about understanding what the margins are supposed to be for agencies and uh, and how they're valued and all those things. I realize that a lot of agencies that are much smaller really don't understand how to do this, how to use those things. And so I created a financial management technology and service company where we really become the outsourced department, uh, finance department for advertising agencies. And we teach them how to do budgeting and planning and forecasting, cash flow analysis. Uh, we also handle all the typical things that go like invoicing and payroll and all the normal things that go with it. But uh, but it's, you know, the goal of it is to teach agencies, you know, how to use the data from their finances to make more intelligent decisions. And uh, I'll just give uh, uh, three stats that I'm really proud of. You know, this, I've only been in business for about a year. And my clients in the first 11 months um, of last year grew 95% on average. Wow. Uh, their growth margin improved 20% uh, on average. And their profits grew 125% on average. And so, Exceptional. you know, and I also take my own company, you know, we grew from 97,000 to 850,000, you know, from 2020 to 2021. And I really believe it's, it's understanding all we have is time and money. And if you spend your time and your money intelligently, uh, you're going to grow. And we're teaching through the finance management's components of businesses to teach agencies how to do that. Yeah, very nice. And 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 what typically, what's the sort of size of your clients typically? You know, they're generally, I would say, between 1 million and 10 million in revenue. Uh, you know, they're small independents. Uh, some of them have some good growth. Some of them have gotten stuck and they don't know why. Uh, and, and the cool thing is because we only focus on this one vertical, we have all the benchmark numbers. We know what all the ratios are. We know what you should be at versus what you currently are at. It's generally really obvious why a company is not thriving or a company is thriving. And so we can help guide them there. Yeah, nice, nice. No, that's that's fantastic. And, and great to be able to use all those sort of skills that are well-developed over all those years. Um, John, I'm, I'm cognizant of time. I've been chatting away here and loving yeah. hearing about your story. I could I could keep talking for hours, I think. But um, I'm... I'm Interested to maybe put you on the spot in a moment um, and, and ask you if there's maybe a tip that you'd give to the listeners out there, maybe other entrepreneurs who are on their journey, maybe starting a business and back where you were, you know, where you're starting a business again now, but, you know, obviously back at the beginning of, of Rise, you know, are there things you would have told yourself back then? But, uh, you know, any of those sort of tidbits, I think, uh, would be helpful to people. But before I kind of put you on the spot there. <laughs> Are you happy for people to reach out and connect and, and do all that sort of stuff? Absolutely. So they can, uh, one, email me at jon at ramseyinnovations.com. Uh, they can go to ramseyinnovations.com and fill out the form there. They could connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, as I mentioned, I love helping people. If I can help answer questions for somebody, by all means, please reach out. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't mind you putting me on the spot at all. I'm happy to give you, you know, some of my guidance. Uh, this goes, this kind of goes back to like the idea of financial management. You know, uh, first thing is, I was personally obsessed with gross margin. 
And so for people who don't know what gross margin is, it's after you spend money to deliver whatever service your clients have hired you for, what do you have left over to invest in sales, marketing, operations, et cetera? And so if you think about it, if you have two clients at a million dollars in revenue and one has a 50% gross margin and the other one has a 20% gross margin, one has $500,000 to invest. The other one only has $200,000 to invest. Uh, and so most of these small companies, when I look at their income statements, they, have, they don't even have it structured right to know what their gross margin is. And so really helping them understand gross margin is a huge component. The second thing, I, I find this really funny because, uh, you know, I try to help advertising agencies. Uh, very few of them actually invest in sales and marketing. <laughs> and I, I feel like if you're a marketing agency, you should believe in marketing. Uh, and, you know, I have a saying that it can't be a goal unless you put budget against it. So if you want to grow and you can get your margin, your gross margin to be as high as possible, that gives you money to invest in sales and marketing and try to invest as much as you possibly can. If it's not allocated properly, learn what didn't work. Don't give up on it. Keep on trying. Get smarter and smarter at it. But you're never going to scale. You're never going to grow if you don't do those two things. Yeah, nice. Nice. Great advice. Great advice. John, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. I'm, I'm super grateful that you've, you've made the time and you've been willing to share your story. I, I know all of our listeners will, will get a lot out of it. And I, um, I personally know people who run digital agencies here in Australia who I think will really enjoy this episode. So. Um, so thank you. I, I will put all your contact details and stuff like that into the show notes for those listening who, who would like to reach out. Um, please, if you do send John a note, perhaps just let him know that you heard him uh, on this podcast so he's got a little context of, uh, of why you're reaching out and where you're reaching out from. Um, but John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Simon, it's been an honor to do this. I appreciate you having me. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.